And and his theory is that it used to be a time in which memory was, we didn't really need memory because things just didn't change that much. You know, the way you did things was the way your father did things. And the way your father did things was the way his father did things. And so, you know, we understood under what was going on, um, you know, but then things started to change really rapidly and this started to make us anxious. So we started preserving our memories in things that wouldn't change. We became obsessed with monuments. We became obsessed with things like street names. Um, he's also talks a lot about archives. He became obsessed with saving things and storing things we don't forget, so we don't forget because we're so scared of forgetting. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Deirdre Mask, a writer, lawyer, and sometime academic. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, The Guardian, The New York Times, The Economist, Lit Hub, The Harvard Law Review, The New Hibernia Review, The Dublin Review, and Irish Pages. She's here today to talk about her new book, The Address Book, what street addresses reveal about identity, race, wealth, and power. Deirdre, welcome to Science for the People. Thank you so much for having me. So what inspired you to write a book about street addresses? I mean, what made you realize there was a book here? Yeah, well, it's interesting because to be honest, I'm actually terrible with, you know, there are people who love maps and they're absorbed with maps and I'm actually terrible with directions. So it wasn't at the start a natural fit. So I actually came by it a different way, which was that during basically some procrastination, I came across this website of this organization, which is called the Universal Postal Union, which is the second oldest UN organization. And they they basically coordinate the world's mail. And while I was on their website, I saw they have this program that's called, um, that was intended to give addresses to people in the world who didn't. And it was there that I learned that billions of people around the world don't have reliable addresses. And I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, And when I was reading more about this, I learned that, you know, even people in rural West Virginia, not that far from where I grew up in North Carolina, also didn't have street addresses. So um, as I say in the book, I borrowed my dad's car on my next trip home, and I ended up driving into West Virginia and interviewing all sorts of people about their addresslessness. And I read an article about it in The Atlantic. And after I, I wrote this article, I just got letters from all over the world from people telling me about, you know, their addresses or lack of addresses. And I just, you know, I just kept collecting stories and writing more and more about it. And and soon I saw that it really was a book. So I think the most sensible place to start is also like not a place to start at all. Because the <laughs> yeah. first question has got to be, okay, so why do street addresses matter? But that's also kind of what you spent a whole book talking about. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think that's what I sort of meant. At first, I thought like, this is just kind of quirky, like, okay, so you can't, you know, you can't find your way to the closest restaurant, or, you know, maybe your mail doesn't arrive on time. But actually, it has a lot more serious consequences. Because right now, your address is basically your identity. And you can think about that, um, you know, when you register for a bank account, what do they ask for your address? You know, when you register your kids for school, it's your address. And they always want these addresses, even though they aren't actually turning up at your door. It's just basically become a way for people to mark you to you know mark and identify people in society. So when you don't have an address, it's you know you'll struggle to do things like open a bank account. You'll struggle to vote. Even you'll struggle to um, get your mail, which can seem like a small thing, but in a lot of places, mail is actually a. Um, you know, it's a it's a necessity. Um, you know, where I live in the UK, you know, letters from the National Health Service come in the mail. Um, all sorts of things come in the mail, and when your mail is just dumped in a community center, you don't have any privacy. You don't have access to it. You, it'd be difficult for you to get credit or get a credit card. All sorts of things. So, in a lot of ways, it's actually become a really important um, uh, factor in sort of you know lifting some people out of poverty, or so the World Bank has also said. I mean, the modern world really requires addresses to Mm -hmm. find people to be able to communicate with people just as you say, to purely identify people as being quote unquote, 
real, even though that feels like a terrible <laughs> word for it. It's also yeah. kind of the right word. Yeah, I think real is the, is the word. I mean, you're seen, you know, like if you um, if you try to do anything, and it's funny, like some of the, the letters I've gotten from people have, have made this exact point. If you try to get off the grid, if you don't have an address, then, you know, people just, you'll find it really difficult to get things. I was doing a book club, for example, where there was um, a woman who was stationed abroad as a, as a military uh, wife. Her husband was in the military. And the U.S. government knows where she is. I mean, she's stationed there with her husband, and yet she can't do things like get certain ID cards. She's struggling to to do all sorts of things because she doesn't have like her California address. Um, and this is somebody who's incredibly privileged, who's actually very much known to the state. So if you don't, you know, in the UK, for example, you know, even to get a marriage certificate, ask for an address to register for a, for a general, you know, a GP is for your address. And while there are ways around these things, you know, um, addresslessness can keep you from doing all sorts of things that can improve your life. And I mean, one of the most obvious ones is if you're homeless or just don't have a good street address, it can be difficult to get a job, even though your job doesn't really need to contact you nowadays at any kind of physical address. It's yes. still a, a requirement in most cases to even apply for the job, never mind get it. Yes, absolutely. And there's this amazing, um, uh, this amazing woman named Sarah, and she was uh, a Yale law student. And she ended up, I had to tell the story in the book, but she ended up writing this really brilliant uh, law review article about this, that, you know, she was, she had an incident in which she really became compelled um, to, to, you know, help the homeless. I mean, it sounds naive, but she, in, a, in, a, in a really meaningful way, she wanted to find new tactics on how to combat homelessness. And, um, and yeah, and she basically just asked people who are homeless, you know, what is, you know, what are your problems with homelessness? And so by definition, people without homes don't have homes, they need homes. But what she hadn't realized as much is that they really need an address because you really need an address to pretend that you aren't homelessness, you aren't homeless, because homelessness is seen as being such a, um, an undesirable state that, you know, to say you're homeless basically excludes you from jobs, it excludes you from doing all sorts of things, it excludes you from this identity factor as well, you know, getting bank accounts. But um, also, if you're a person without a home, in general, one of the ways you maintain your own self-identity and your own self-regard is by doing things that make you look like you aren't homeless. So this is why people who are homeless don't have a certain look, you know, they find ways of, 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 of staying clean, of, um, you know, of appearing like, you know, as somebody who does have a home. And one of those things that they need is an address so they can get by. And ironically, you know, you give somebody an address, that's sort of a step to them getting a home because they can get a job and they can, they can pretend they're not homeless and not be discriminated against based on their status. You mentioned that uh, obviously there are people in the world living without addresses. They live in homes of some kind uh, and in varying kinds, depending on where they are in the world. But definitely one of the surprising things as someone who is from Canada, who is living currently in the UK, um, was there's actually a kind of surprising number of people in places like the US that don't have street addresses. I found that really surprising. Yeah, I mean, it's becoming it's becoming more of an issue. So there's fewer and fewer people who who um, are in this situation. But absolutely, I mean, even even today, I was doing a, another talk where there was somebody who lived in rural Vermont who just had a post office, you know, had a post office box, and their street didn't have. Um, they were just a rural route number, you know, they just didn't have this. So so there's that. That's true for a lot of you know for rural communities. And slowly, as in the West Virginia project that I was following, this is changing. People are getting addresses. It's really with things like the Patriot Act. It's really become such a necessity. But also, there's an interesting flip. Like I remember when I wrote my Atlantic piece, I got a letter from somebody who lived right next door to Alpine, New Jersey, which is one of the very richest 
places in America. You know, all sorts of famous celebrities live there. It's very, very close to Manhattan in these huge mansion houses. And they, at that time at least, didn't have house numbers, but for different reasons, for this anonymity purpose. Uh, People picked up their mail at the post office because people, you know, really famous people actually didn't want to be found in the same way that, you know, some other people don't want to be found who are off the grid. Um, Carmel, California is also a place that famously doesn't have um, it doesn't have street addresses in the way that we describe them. So, so it's interesting. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a mix, but it's becoming more of an issue. And I think this is being rectified with every year. And of course, it's definitely not just uh, people in rural parts of North America that don't have street addresses. A lack of addresses is a really um, problematic feature of places places like India or Haiti. Uh, not having a street address is is a massive problem in some of those places, and just getting those street addresses out can is in itself like a logistical challenge. Yeah, logistical challenge is exactly is exactly the word, and it com- it comes out in different ways. As I said, it's for the person without an address, it can be really difficult to do all sorts of things. Like I said, get identification or get a passport or bank accounts. But there's also other societal reasons why we need them. So um, one of my chapters, for example, describes Haiti as you as you say that the first half of the chapter describes um, John Snow, not the Game of Thrones John Snow. I always have to point <laughs> out um, this different doctor John Snow. He was kind of a really amazing man. He was a teetotaler and a bachelor. He was born in very humble circumstances, very poor, and actually walking um, from, I believe, from Newcastle to London to go to medical school. But he sort of rose up and became one of the very first anesthesiologists. And he actually gave uh, anesthesia to Queen Victoria during childbirth. So he was quite a prominent doctor. But he basically lived right next to a slum. And he became obsessed with cholera, which was, you know, racking London in waves. And back then, of course, there was no germ theory of disease, but he had this 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 theory that it was spread through water, and it was as as was correct. And he basically was able to get primarily from death certificates that described how people died, and he was able to use the locational information um, to sort of map out where people were dying. And he was able to locate um, a specific cholera outbreak to a pump, and the pump handle goes off, and poof, you know, it's more complicated than that. But basically, the the cholera stopped. Um, so I was intrigued by the story and by the fact that what he did in Victoria and London wasn't possible in places like Haiti because they don't have um, – Haiti not only for the most part didn't have great street addresses, but it also wasn't – a lot of it wasn't even really mapped properly. Um, and so when epidemiologists came after the big cholera outbreak, after the, after the tragic uh, earthquake in Haiti in 2010, there was a huge cholera outbreak. When they came to try to map cholera or even just to find patients afflicted with cholera, they couldn't do what Jon Snow had done you know, <laughs> back in Victoria and London. Um, um, and reading about this, uh, this dichotomy was just completely fascinating to me and showed again how, you know, not only is it useful for you, it's useful for society in times like like now and uh, as well as in, in times of cholera. I also want to talk uh, about the history of street addresses because it's something we take for granted in our everyday life. It's so ubiquitous around us. We literally use them every day. But how long have addresses in a kind of form that we would recognize them? How long have they existed? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's hard to pinpoint exactly, but mostly people think about addresses in terms of like house numbers and street names as being at least, you know, in, in the Western world, uh, if that's what you want to describe it as, as being sort of an enlightenment invention of, you know, the enlightenment, uh, you know, it was cataloging things, it was categorizing things were dramatic shifts in governments and revolutions. And one of those things was, you know, it was basically bringing people to light. Where were the people? And um, so a lot of states by that point in time, the way it's been described to me is sort of 
have been like, you know, it used to be that you had a ruler and they had territory, but you know, what the people did inside that territory wasn't of that much concern to the ruler as long as they paid their taxes. But in the Enlightenment, things changed and they wanted to categorize people and see people and do things to the population, like, you know, some good things like send them to schools and maybe some not so good things like draft them for, you know, draft them into their armies. And so they, they had, governments had a greater need to find people. Um, and so that became, for a lot of states, you know, a lot of purposes of, of house number became, yeah, to draft people or to quarter soldiers um, so that they could find them later. And, and um, lots of projects to be able to actually figure out who people were and where were they. Um, now there often been censuses even before that, but, but in general, this was, was a way, and people knew that this was changing, that once you you could locate people, um, you know, easily, um, that, that, that would sort of change their relationship to government. Yeah, addresses are really a, a piece of formal identification. It, it was interesting to hear you or to read you talking in the book about mm. the kind of paired rise of addresses, but also uh, the idea of surnames that mm. are is really all about identifying people in a more precise way, not just not just by who they are, but also where they are. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of that, that, um, you know, the book in general, as I said, I came to this book completely as an amateur with just a sort of quirky idea. And so I relied on all these brilliant academics and geographers and thinkers, um, that's, you know, are spread throughout the pages. And, and that sense really comes from this book, which I highly recommend everybody to read, which is called Seeing Like a State. And, um, it's by this man named James Scott. And he, um, basically came up with this idea. I mean, he sort of sat down, he says, to write down this book that was um, basically, why do we dislike, why does the state dislike people who move around so much? So travelers or gypsies or itinerants or homeless, why does, why does the state feel so threatened by these people? And he basically <laughs> ended up going backwards and saying, wait, how did we come to become pinned down in the first place? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so seeing like a state is, I think, a, a really amazing metaphor that he's come up with, that the state has to see things, it has to make things legible, it has to figure things out, because it doesn't like a, a mess. Um, and so it does all of these different things, and one of these things is addressing um, and street naming to figure out where people are, as a, sort of as a means of control. And, 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 he, and he's the one who sort of brings up the point of last names that, you know, it used to be that people didn't have last names, but, you know, the, all of a sudden this became impossible because locally it'd be quite helpful, you know, but also there were very few first names. I mean, like now there were very few first names. So, but, you know, people would know oh, that's Tom, you know, the Baker son or things like that, but that's not very helpful to the state. The state doesn't know who the local son, and there are very good reasons why people might not want you to know which Tom they're talking about. Mm-hmm. So this requirement to to bring last names became part of it, but then it became disastrous in cases of um, I talk about you know in places where you know Jews were required to have last names, um, and they were required to have last names even from a closed list that identified themselves as Jewish, which set them up for sort of I, th- I think there's a quote in the book that talks about quote uh, effortless identification by the Nazis later. So um, so yeah, all this is complex. There's, it's not it's not neutral. Absolutely. And it's definitely something you come back to again and again in the book. Uh, one of the things I think I will take from this is naming streets, naming, giving people addresses, uh, allowing people to either name themselves or giving them a name. It's all wrapped up in the idea of identity, which has a lot of positive connotations. Mm. We often talk about, you know, who we are, what our identity is, but there's also, of course, the sort of state official connotations of identity, but yeah. also the idea of numbering people as being dehumanizing and somehow an address kind of does both. 
Mm, mm, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, numbers are essentially dehumanizing. So when people, you know, again, we sort of take it for granted that we're all numbered, but when in the early house numbers, there's this uh, amazing academic named Anton Tantner. I, I follow him in the book in Vienna. Um, yeah, he sort of, you know, he, he was the one who sort of made this point that, you know, when you had, you know, the early, early days of, of, you know, numbering, people knew that, you know, what am I, a house number? Am I a number? That's not who I am. Um, but then again, on the flip side, there are all sorts of benefits to having a number. So when one, one other early I talked about governments um, addressing, but there's an, an academic, a geographer called Ruben Rose Redwood, who's written a lot about how a lot of other streets um, were um, numbered and uh, maybe even named. I think mostly we're talking about numbering here, but also named perhaps by um, business directories, people who own business directories. And business directories would have reason to do this because what they do is they sell, they're in, they're in the, the business of selling information. You know, they sell everybody's name connected to a house number or whatever, then you can find them. Um, and this is something that's a valuable asset. But they systematically left out minorities, they left out women, women run households, because who wants to find them, right? I mean, it's practical, nobody's going to buy this business directory to find these lower status members of society. And so they were sort of excluded um, from these from these projects to address and to create directories. Um, so it's not so, so, so in that sense, I mean, but it's, it was also a great privilege in some ways to have a number to be counted on the map. And I saw this in India when I followed this team that were do that was doing addresses with this incredible charity that's been set up to to give addresses to the slums, um, to people who are living in, in the slums, uh, where there was at one point we came across a woman who really wanted an address and her, her, I guess you could call it her house, her home was probably one of the poorest ones that I'd seen in, in the, the time that I was in Calcutta. Um, you know, the, there was two people sleeping on top of the bed and there was at least one person sleeping underneath the bed. There was just pots and pans. It was very small, not much of a roof. And she really wanted an address and it was really about inclusion. You know, she really wanted to be included. I didn't, I doubt she had a lot of money to put in a bank account, as a lot of people were opening bank accounts um, in these projects in these slums. But, you know, she wanted to be included. She wanted to be counted. She wanted to be on a map. Um, and, you know, there are amazing World Bank experts who have really analyzed this, um, if you want to go ever go to their original research, who have really made this point that inclusion is the secret weapon of addresses. If, if you're all together, you know, if you have an address, if you're included in the map, you have a sense of being part of this community. If you're systematically excluded, then you don't. And in India, this was part of the point. Because, you know, the slums, for the most part, uh, most people are squatters. They're, you know, they don't have secure land tenure. And so there's very good reasons not to give them addresses if you're the government, because you don't want them to have this sense of legitimacy. I mean, you're actively trying to keep them out of the community of people who, who you know, own their land or rent legally or things like that. So it becomes much more complicated, um, yeah, when you think about it that way. For sure. The idea of inclusion of having an address gives you access to certain things and gives you access to a, a world maybe you can't get without it, but also that certain types of addresses can act as um, signals that will allow people to exclude or include you in a more targeted or perhaps even malicious way. Sure, absolutely. And one thing I always think of, I think one of the reasons why sometimes I get these little letters or emails from people is that I think we can all think back on the places that we grew up. And if you just take a second and you think about like, you know, could you map out generally the different neighborhoods? Could you map out street names or or neighborhood parts where people with less money are lived or where the really wealthy people would live or um, where the African-American community lived or um, maybe the, you know, the Chinese-American community lived, you know, or, you know, all sorts of things. You can kind of map it out. And I know I can in my home hometown. So, um 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is something that, you know, just when you think about things geographically, it actually starts to make sense. So I want to talk a little bit about addresses themselves, because there's a lot of variety in what words or formats an address comes in. So Mm. obviously, like naming conventions come in and out of fashion, you talk a little bit about that in your book. Mm -hmm. And one of the most prominent things I think uh, probably both you and I are well aware of being people who lived in North America and now come over to the UK is uh, the North American standard of kind of grids and numbering names of streets and street addresses is a bit of a foreign concept over here. Yeah, absolutely. It was one thing that came up in that depending on how you and how you consider street names, um, Second Street, as the census has said, is the most popular street name in America. Some people say advised with Park, but numbered streets are, well, you know, I think maybe it's, is it four out of every 10? I'd have to look it up. But, you know, numbered streets are extremely popular in, um, in North America and South America, apparently. Um, but, you know, when you live in Europe, they're basically unheard of. In some places, they've banned them. I mean, they really frown upon them. I mean, um, they're seen as very very American, very newfangled. And there's only a few exceptions of places that I know of that have numbered street names. And I was really curious of this. Why are they among the very most popular street names in America, um, but are basically unheard of in Europe? And yeah, it does have to do with this idea of the grid, for example, that, that you know, America, for lots of reasons, I mean, the when the European settlers came there, it obviously wasn't, it wasn't already laid out in, in traditional street, European style streets. And, um, and they sort of started out with grids. It was a chance to start anew. Um, and William Penn, who founded Pennsylvania, named after not him, but his father, uh, he basically became one of the, the first in America, really the first in America to introduce numbered streets, um, probably inspired by his Quaker faith and that sense of humility, not naming streets after people Um and and then it just sort of spread as the as as America just needed to be very quickly surveyed and and so the land sold off that it just sort of spread and then it also was sort of wrapped up in ideas of um, you know rationality and uh, you know America was very behind this they were enlightenment they weren't they weren't America they weren't Europe you know there was there weren't they weren't going to have these sort of um, the landscape is going to be very different uh, it was sort of an active an active choice um, and you see it now in the streetscapes. It's interesting because the different strategy for naming and for street addressing and for laying out uh, space mm. in North America means there's a different way of navigating there. Uh, I grew up in a small suburban area that was probably more like Europe than mm. North America. It had lots of like little cul-de-sacs and twists and turns as a lot of right. suburbs do, all named streets. Um, and then I moved to a larger city that was laid out on a grid and I very quickly adopted to the grid because I was able to to look at an address and without ever having been there before, I know exactly or pretty pretty close where in the city it is and broadly how mm. to get there, which mm. is not something you get when you have the kind of European style of lots of, you know, no grid and no numbering system. Uh, so it's a very different way of navigating a space and also understanding how the space works and being mm. able to kind of extrapolate how to get somewhere with without having to necessarily even draw a map or reference a map. Absolutely. I mean, if as somebody who's lived in who lived in New York and lived in lives in London now, you know, they're very different cities in many ways. But you know, you wonder how much of it is influenced by the streetscape. You know, London is known for its winding streets, for its impossible to navigate, um, you know, landscape, for the difficulties of finding any given street. Whereas New York's the exact opposite. It's incredibly easy to navigate. Now that makes it sound like one is better than the other, but I don't necessarily know if that's true. You know, in, in New York, it's incredibly easy to navigate, um, but you don't have quite the same opportunity 
opportunities to get lost and to wander around. You know, a lot of people like that about London. That, that I think I quote somebody saying it likes its higgledy piggledy streets, right? <laughs> like they like sort of getting lost in these winding streets, and that there's a certain charm and the the very old fashioned names um, that that sort of pepper London. Whereas in you know New York, this grid it's very rational, um, which is a very different experience. So again, I don't I don't see it necessarily as a as a positive or a negative, but they but they the grids reflect the different histories of the cities. And uh, speaking of the way we do addresses and navigate space, one of the things I didn't know, which I was mm. fascinated by in the book, is the mm. way street addresses and addressing is done in Tokyo. I found that completely uh, fascinating. Yeah, well, I, I, this is always one thing that comes up when you talk to people about writing a book about street addresses. People are very interested in talking about Tokyo, who have been there, um, because Tokyo doesn't, um, they don't in general name streets. Um, they basically do it on a block system where they're blocks. Um, that are, you know, that have a number or there's often like a neighborhood. Um, and then houses are numbered, but they're sort of haphazardly numbered. They aren't, a lot of times apparently they're numbered according to when the building was built, not according to, you know, the the systematic way we do numbering. So, so, so you know, people, in fact, there's a scene in Lost in Translation where, you know, they're looking at a map trying to find, <laughs> find a place because, you know, it's done by these, organized by these blocks, not by streets. And I came across this absolutely brilliant um, geography Oh, he's really an urban planner. Uh, his name is Barry Shelton, who now lives, he's um, English, but he lived in Australia for a long time and now lives in Japan, where he's, he's married to um, a woman from Japan. And um, he sort of sees it as um, as to do with the way we write. So, you know, um, he talks about in his book, which is called Learning from the Japanese City, which I, I also highly recommend reading. Um, you know, he talks about how when he was a boy growing up, I believe in Nottingham, he was writing on a line, you know, A, B, C, you had to write on the line and the top of the letter has to touch the top of the line and the bottom touches the other. But his his wife would tell him about how when she was learning um when she was learning to write Japanese, they didn't write along the lines, the line, because they write Japanese characters in boxes. And he sort of uses this as a jumping off point to talk about how, how Japanese think about space very differently from, um, from you know, Americans, for example, because they do tend to see lots of different things in boxes. Um, you know, and a lot of design um, in Japan is, is more around area rather than along a line. So whereas we see, so I guess we're kind of, if you use the metaphor of reading a city as, as people often do, mm-hmm. we read our city on lines and they, they read their city in, in blocks. Um, so, so does this account for their different addresses? Um, I don't know, but I'd like to think so. It's definitely an interesting uh, idea as to how the different way of looking at a space might have just kind of naturally evolved over time um, in conjunction as writing evolved for sure. Yeah, definitely. And of course, as uh, people continue to exist and as we get more digital, there's new and different ways of thinking Mm. about addresses and space, one of which I had just heard about before reading your book, which is Mm. what three words, um, which is quite uh, an interesting idea in how we map the planet effectively. Yeah. Address the planet? Yeah, address the planet. Yeah. What three words is a startup? Um, it's, It's quite a cool idea where rather than, um, you know, there's lots of ways of identifying places without addresses where you could use, you know, um, you know, latitude, longitude, you know, use GPS coordinates, basically, um, to find places, but they've basically turned these GPS coordinates into, um, you know, it's easier to remember words than numbers is their theory. So every single place in the world, I'm going to uh, I'm going to get it wrong if I get it. I think it's every three meter by three meter square uh, or something around that um, has three words. 
Um, so a place might be, you know, book shelf banana. Mm -hmm. And if you type bookshelf banana into their app, it'll zero in on a very specific place. So it's actually incredibly useful, first of all, you know, for places that don't um, have traditional addresses, but also if you're in the park, for example, um, then, you know, with no address, you can tell your friends exactly where you are. Or if you need something loaded um, in the back of your building rather than the front, you can give the back address um, to people. And actually, a lot of police in the UK are now using it to help find people um, who are in places where they don't know where they are. So it's a very cool idea, um, modern idea about how to how to address places that don't have addresses, but even for places that do addresses, how to pinpoint uh, more specifically where people are. Yeah, it again just goes back to the idea that even though sometimes maybe it can cause problems, there are cons to having a, an address or to having a clear location being findable. There are yes. also oftentimes very real important uh, benefits and sometimes life and limb benefits. Like I'm assuming things like what three words could be incredibly useful if you call like 911 after being, you know, being in a car crash in kind of the middle of nowhere where there is no signage, there's no, there's nothing to kind of no landmarks. Um, yeah. There's a lot of places in the in even the kind of westernized world where that could be an incredibly like life saving thing to be able to allow someone to pinpoint you to a three meter by three meter space. Yeah, exactly. And um, in fact, what three words is already being used by police officers. I think it's also being used by like sort of rescue people who rescue people in mountains and the like, um, that if you can pinpoint this, um, if you could pinpoint the location very specifically. I mean, you, these are things that could be done. I mean, it's not like it can't be done in other ways, but um, it's quite a clever way of reframing how we describe where we are. So I also want to talk a little bit about what we, because a very real and sort of probably most obvious thing about a street address is the actual address itself and the pieces mm. that make it up. So we talked a little bit about the sort of numbering system um, of uh, a lot of places in North America, but there are lots of places, including where we both are here in England, uh, mm. that definitely don't use numbers. There's a lot of very interesting street names here. Yes. Um, yeah. So, you know, England, I always love reading about English street names because a lot of them. So, you know, right now we often think about there's a lot of talk about commemorative names. And by that, I mean, you know, a lot of names are either named after people or they're named after nice things. We give our names a lot of thought because we want them to sound good. Um, but, you know, a lot of street names just arose because they're quite practical. You know, it was, this was the name of the family that lived there or this was the river that it was close by or, you know, apple trees grow on this road. So it's Apple Tree Road or whatever ever. Um, but, you know, they, a lot of them weren't uh, weren't designed this way. So you get a lot of rude street names like, you know, Crotch Crescent or um, Butthole Lane in America and in, in, in the UK, not because they were just going to call a butthole, but because, for example, there was a water butt there, for example, or East Breast Lane. Well, was their family called Breast there? You know, I mean, there are just books and books that talk about rude street names. Um, so, there, so, so that's one way of thinking about the history. But another one, and am I allowed to say it, Rochelle? Is yeah, it, you go for it. it. We'll bleep it. Go for it. Well, this, this, well, the chapter, one of the chapters begins with something called Grope Lane. And there's an academic, a uh, really incredibly brilliant, clever guy, and um, two, two, two academics, actually, who, who banned or research streets called Grope Lane. Um, this is pre-Victorians when they cleaned up everything. But basically, these were streets that were 
they were, you know, often the, the places for prostitution, but not just prostitution, as they point out. Like, you know, there wasn't a lot of privacy. Um, you know, people, this is where people would go to have their dalliances. And it was just quite a practical name in a time when there weren't a lot of maps. Um, if you were a sailor in a port town, you turned up to a place and you, you go to Grove Lane and you don't really need a map, do you, with street names like Grove? <laughs> so, um, so, you know, so it became quite a practical way, but it's a very difficult, different way of thinking about space and geography than we think of now, where we think of, you know, choosing a name for a subdivision, what are you going to call it? You know, we don't really name things in a practical way these days. Um, you know, we, we try to honor people or, or, or honor the location or think about something, but in general, they tend to be quite nice names. Um, uh, so, so yeah, so that, that sort of showed one of, one of the differences, um, you know, from the origins of street names till now. So when we think about naming things, uh, as you mentioned, we often use commemorative names, uh, mm. names of people or places or periods in time. And as I'm sure we're all well aware of right now, this interview today is happening on the 29th of June, and there has been a lot of discussion and will continue to be a lot of discussion on what is appropriate to commemorate. This can get complicated and controversial. People who were perhaps more universally admired after a 100 years or so, often we learn things about them that are current cultural temperature, it has changed. Yes. I mean, a really obvious example, uh, in Nazi Germany, there were a lot of streets renamed to suit the Reich, which today are completely unacceptable. I mean, I would yes. hope very, very few people would want to live on Adolf <laughs> Hitler Avenue today. Yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, the origins, it sort of goes back to the last question. We used to have these sort of um, very practical names. And my publisher in the UK, for example, is on Cloth Fair. I mean, what a lovely name, you know, but it wasn't designed to be lovely. It was because it was a cloth fair market there, you know. But yeah, but then things changed that we started to commemorate names. And this is absolutely true of um, of in World War II, as it was anywhere else where, you know, as the as Hitler came into power, you know, towns began to, towns and cities began to commemorate him. So much so that I'm told that almost every city in uh, or town in Germany would have had an Adolf Hitler Platz or street. Um, and, uh, you know, that just becomes fascinating in itself about how much the landscape changed to honor, you know, Nazi martyrs. Um, but even in some ways, so in one of my chapters in Berlin, I tell this story. And at the same time, not only were they adding the names of, of Nazi martyrs, quotes, martyrs, um, they were also stripping um, Jewish street names of their names of Jewish, you know, so names, streets that were named after Jewish people were taken down the street. So just as, as Jews were slowly and then very quickly being deprived of their rights and their freedom and their lives, also the streets were being stripped of their names. So that's a, that's a story, you know, that I think probably wouldn't actually surprise people even when they heard it. But there's, then it becomes more difficult even, um, you know, so after the wars, you said, you know, everybody, you know, denazifying, they're getting rid of these names. But then it becomes a question of what do we change them to? And obviously, after the war, Germany was split in two in two very radically different different ways and different politics. And so, as you can imagine, the East began to get more radical with their names, honoring um, communists, often communists who fought and died, um, fought against the Nazis and were killed by them. Um, and the West preferred to take a, a different approach. Um, you know, obviously, weren't honoring communists who they saw as sort of their existential threat, but you know, sort of went back to a lot of the old names, which aren't necessarily that great either. Yeah, um, you know, so so when they reunite, it becomes what do they do? Do they strip all of these communist names that were Nazi martyrs, or do they um, do they keep them? Like, how do they keep the flavor of the East while merging with the West? And a lot of people believe that actually was sort of a Western takeover that the Westerners took over the Eastern street names, so that it became difficult for people to know. You know, they had these memories of certain Eastern street names that no longer existed. Um, 
so that chapter really tells the story about, you know, how do we merge these two and what do the street names show about the, the successes and the failures of the, of the merger of East and West Germany? Yeah, definitely. It definitely is a, a really obvious uh, example of how street names and addresses can be just an extremely both subtle but not subtle form of propaganda. The yeah. idea that you can, by by stripping certain people away from the street names, from the everyday vernacular of navigation, and then imprinting a different group of people, you can really just start to to kind of nefariously remove an idea or a culture from the consciousness, you can make it invisible in a very real way because you've removed it even from the kind of background noise of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of talk about monuments. I'm not the first to say this, but, you know, monuments in some ways are kind of invisible, you know? I mean, it's true. Like I think about the monuments of my neighborhood. There's one in my park that only recently when I was writing about monuments. I'd actually bothered to see what it was commemorating. And, uh, you know, but street names aren't like that. I mean, they're subtle in that you don't really think about it, but you do have to use them. You know, you have to use them. You have to say them. They become part of your identity. They become, you know, very much linked with your memories of a place. And so, you know, it, propaganda is exactly the word. And obviously, who was a better propagandist than Hitler? You know, I mean, that, that became another way of slowly seeding this this message into your brain. Um, so, uh, so yeah, absolutely. So thinking about them that way um, can, can yeah help you think about street names differently. I also really, it made me think very carefully as well in the chapter in Berlin about the fact mm-hmm. that Berlin, and uh, obviously some more places around that, but Berlin underwent what is comparatively really rapid renaming of places. Mm-hmm. So um, the Third Reich coming in and renaming a bunch of places, and then the fall of the Reich and the kind of splitting of Berlin into East and West and a bunch of different renamings. And then after it reunited, then there's more renamings. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's what's interesting about that is both there's the sort of propaganda aspect and the idea of controlling or manipulating culture and kind of people's mindsets, but also your discussion of the kind of break in continuity for people and the change of their of of their own personal identity and sort of like an inability now to talk to other generations like members mm. of their own family mm-hmm. about their mm-hmm. life experiences from not that long ago because they mm-hmm. no longer have a shared vocabulary of where Exactly. Yeah. And and and, and when another chapter I talk a lot about sort of the neuroscience of, of place and memory, that these things are connected. So it becomes it does become more than just saying the street name. So I tell the story in that chapter of a woman who was um who grew up in East Germany and her parents had lived in East Berlin and she moved to Berlin and you know, she was she she was happened to she was getting her hair done and, and the woman they were from the same place. But they were trying to say things like, What high school did you go to? Where did you live? And all the names had changed. So even they were they were from the same place and had the shared culture, they basically couldn't translate the places they lived and the experiences they were having because the names had all changed. And I thought it was a, like a really powerful metaphor for how important these um, these names come into into communication in our in our communities and our shared identities. It's also, I feel, a really interesting case study with Germany because it has this very this piece of its history that was literally everywhere in its culture and its name mm. on its streets. And in some cases, it t- kind of had two versions of this, because when you get mm. East Berlin, you get the layering of Stalin's communism over top of the Third mm. Reich, which is even, mm. you know, it's it's kind of these layers. Um, mm-hmm. And Germany, in trying to 
preserve that history and be aware of it, but not um, glorify it has had a really kind of interesting approach sometimes to what street names should be or can be and whether or not they're, they're appropriate or whether they're inappropriate, which can be a very difficult thing because by, in some place, in some cases, you, something that might seem problematic, maybe you don't want to remove it because it feels mm. like hiding a mm. history or hiding a skeleton in your closet. But at the same time, you can also cross over into, we're hanging this up and are proud of it, which you also don't want. Yes, it's really difficult. In that chapter, I talk a lot about this really amazing conceptual artist called Susan Hiller. She's American, though. She she lived in London a good bit of her life. Um, and she, she, she wrote this, um, she did a, a big art uh, exhibit and also made a film about streets named called basically Jew streets, Judenstrasse. And there's not just Judenstrasse, there's all sorts of, you know, Jew street, Jew lane, Jew path. And she came across these when she was on a fellowship in Berlin and was like, what does this mean? And basically what she determined it meant, it was that a lot of times they were like the practical name, you know, there's Market Street, there's Church Street, you know, there was Jew Street, that was where the Jews lived. Um, and she just she wasn't quite sure how to interpret this, you know, was this a good thing that this was kept up? Or was this a negative thing? Um, and so her art, so basically became kind of, she went to every single street named after named Jew Street in Germany, of which there are quite a few. And, you know, it was basically just filming them and pondering, you know, what does this mean? And, you know, a lot of there, there would there would even be certain sort of basically Jew paths that were thought to me they just look like wooded little paths that 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 you would discover were actually the places where Jews you know they, you weren't allowed to walk through the city you had to walk around the city so the fact that these names were kept was it a good thing was it commemoration or was it not or was it just you know a historical fact um, and so you know so debating this and thinking about this became a complex way of, of you know a new and complex way of thinking about the role of Jewish society in, in Germany. Do you think there are lessons that maybe somewhere like the US can take either things to take on board or perhaps maybe things to avoid when reckoning mm-hmm. with its own history of slavery in the Civil War and Confederates? Confederacy? Oh gosh, there's so much. I mean, it's so complex. I mean, this where so there's a chapter in the book on, on Confederate street names um, that that chronicles a debate to take away um, Confederate to take away Confederate street names in a in a Florida city called Hollywood. Um, and I found it really difficult. I mean, in general the book, I try to be a social scientist. I mean, I think I play my cards often and, and how I feel about it, but it's not a polemic. I'm really trying to understand it. And that chapter was particularly difficult for me. I'm African-American. Um, so, you know, it was hard to pretend that I didn't have a dog in the fight for a Confederate street name. So I felt very strongly that they should be taken down. Um, and again, I was reporting on this before the decision which was made to take them down. Um but, uh, but yeah, I think there are lessons to go through. I mean, I, I one of the one of the I actually learned a lot in writing that chapter, and one was in trying to come to a position of understanding. I learned so much about why Confederate street names were put up. You know, Confederate street names they weren't they weren't left over from the Civil War. I mean, they were put up a sign. They, they were put up in times of um, of cri- you know of civil rights movements and crises, basically often to intimidate the local population. So in Hollywood, Florida, where I chronicle, um, these street names were in a part of town that was called Liberia. The founder of Hollywood, Florida, because you know Hollywood, ba- you know Florida is basically founded, right? You had people literally come and just build these towns out of cities out of nothing. Um, it was a black area of town, and they had actually um, the man who founded is Joseph Young. By all counts, was actually fairly progressive, and he only built a black city basically because blacks at the time were not allowed to live in white cities. Um, and he named them quite progressive names. He named the streets after after southern cities, largely that had large black populations. And he named the park and the plans. The park is named. 
welcomed uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar after the poet, who's actually quite a radical black poet, really. So, I mean, so he really was going very far with it. And yet these, some of these street names were changed. Nobody really knows for sure, but probably during the height of the KKK reign and like, I guess I'm saying 1920s or so. So they, you know, to, to Robert E. Lee Street and Nathan Bedford Forest Street. I mean, they weren't intended to actually commemorate these men, even though perhaps they said what they did. They were really intended to, to intimidate the people who lived there. Um, so it's hard when you look at that history not to have an argument that, that they should be taken down. But that said, I think the chapter tries to understand you know, how people re- have reframed the Civil War as not being about slavery, as being this whole idea of the lost cause. Um, but also just understanding other people. I mean, I was amazed at the number of people at the city council meetings, which I would watch from my computer, they're all filmed, who would stand up and say, you know, I don't care anything about Robert E. Lee. And I genuinely believe them. You know, I don't, I, you know, I have nothing to do with the Civil War. But you know, I grew up on Lee Street. I brought my babies home from the hospital on Lee Street. I met my husband on Lee Street. I bought my first house on Lee Street. You know, if you name it to something else, you're really taking something away from me. Um, and, you know, I disagree that that's a reason. I think when memory and conscience conflict, you should go with your conscience. But I, I think it, it added another layer of complexity to the debate. Um, and I think, you know, this term we're hearing a lot about anti-racist. I mean, even as an African-American, it wasn't really a concept or a term I had thought about that much versus just not racist. And I think even that's something that changed over the course of um, even after writing that chapter, that the idea now is not just to not to bow down to things like memory and seeing them as, well, you're not actually racist because you're not actually saying you like Robert E. Lee, but that we have to go the step further of anti-racism and say, never, nevertheless, you know, given that it's honoring this, we have to push forward. We have to make more radical changes to the landscape. Um, but yeah, but it, you know, it became this very fractured debate and it had a lot to do with people's completely differing memories and ideas of what the Civil War was. There's a, a great quote in your book, um, mm-hmm. which I, I transcribed here because I wanted to yeah. have it ready, which was memorializing the past is just another way of wishing about the present. The yeah. trouble is that we don't always share the same memories and mm-hmm. not everyone has an equal opportunity to enshrine their group's memory on the landscape, which I think is a great way to capture and kind of really briefly encapsulate a lot of what you're sort of reckoning with in a few chapters. Also the mm-hmm. uh, chapter about um, South Africa as well touches on a lot of this in a, in a sort of way outside of the US. Um, and it, it made me kind of sit and think a little bit about, um, cause you also talk about some of the problematic people who we've named streets after or who people have proposed to name streets after in mm. places like Ireland. Mm, um, mm. and uh, there were a few other places and I was sort of thinking, if we hypothetically in an imaginary world had an equal society, I wondered if problematic names of streets or problematic statues might somehow be less problematic because mm-hmm. they would be a more broad representation of everybody's problematic people. Yes. I mean, I could see that. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really hard to, to take these things away. I mean, I guess it goes back to the Lee point. If you, if you don't know your streets named after Robert E. Lee, if it's just Lee Street to you, what does that actually mean to you? You know, and I guess that's what I mean by like the point of having to go further and research and look back, but because it, it does mean something because there is such systemic racism. Um, but would it matter if not? I don't know. But but we do tend to use names and monuments. I mean, we're obsessed with the past. We're I mean, everybody's obsessed with the past. And and, and there, again, there have been many many historians and philosophers who have said this for a long time. And and the thing is, we're becoming. There's this uh, brilliant French philosopher uh, Pierre Nora um, who wrote a lot about this, um, where this idea that you know there were 
people have long said that history is speeding up and speeding up and speeding up. And I always say that this was seemed like a very abstract concept to me before 2020, right? When things just changed constantly. And, and his theory is that it used to be a time in which memory was, we didn't really need memory because things just didn't change that much. You know, the way you did things was the way your father did things. And the way your father did things was the way his father did things. And so, you know, we understood under what was going on, um, you know, but then things started to change really rapidly and this started to make us anxious. So we started preserving our memories in things that wouldn't change. We became obsessed with monuments. We became obsessed with things like street names. Um, he also talks a lot about archives. We became obsessed with saving things and storing things we don't forget. So we don't forget because we're so scared of forgetting. I mean, that basically is one of the reasons why we have these debates because people try to try to make them permanent. And we start saying, well, that's not permanent because everything's changing all the time. Um, and, you know, there are good things and bad things about this. I mean, you could see it lots of different ways, but it really is the situation that we're in. So here's a probably what is a terrible philosophical question. And do feel mm. free to say if you think it's nonsense, because it <laughs> okay. very well might be. Um, okay. But the modern world is sort of preoccupied with identity. It requires mm. an extensive amount of a certain type of identity, surnames and addresses with states and counties and countries and postcodes, national insurance numbers and taxpayer mm. numbers and health card numbers and employee numbers and usernames. We're all kind of constantly steeping in this base layer of, frankly, dehumanizing, but necessary kind of, quote unquote, identity to allow the modern world to function. Right. But some of the conversations I've been having in conjunction with reading your book, I kind of wonder if that's made it even more difficult for people to find their own identity as a human person kind of underneath all this rigorous demographic and formal mm -hmm. identification that we have. Like, if I can't describe myself by any information I would be asked to put on the first page of a standard government form, who am I? Yeah. Who am I underneath all those layers of identification? Yeah, because we have all these layers of identification. And a lot of those are ones that we chose, right? We didn't even choose our names. We didn't choose, mm. we didn't choose our last names. We don't choose our first names. You know, in general, there's, you know, generally don't choose the names, the streets we live, we don't choose all sorts of things about ourselves. So you're right, they do feel, you know, impounded on us. And one of the, the last bit of my book is, you know, what street names reveal about identity, race, wealth, and power. And it was an early mentor of mine who, when I was talking about this book, is like, yes, yeah, this book is really about power. And it took me a lot of thinking about that. But I think that's exactly right. And I make this point, um, again, it's not one, it's one that many people have made. It's not original to me, but this idea that naming is power. So, you know, when, um, and there's a whole, whole, you know, area of study related to this, but if you think about, you know, Adam and Eve, God named the earth because he had power of the earth, but he gave Adam the power to name all the animals. And as I say, problematically, I believe he named Eve as well, you know, because naming things do have power over, you know, you, you know, so when you, I, I can see that point that when, you know, you're constantly under all these names and things that, that you have, you know, just, you do start to feel maybe a bit powerless. I mean, maybe that's overly philosophical. I don't know. But I think the, the case point is people who, um, don't really appear that much in my book, but, you know, in a sideways way, kind of want to go off the grid. You know, there are lots of people who just want to go off the grid. They don't want this address. They don't want, you know, their name on list. They just want to be, that to them is freedom, you know, being free of all of these chains, you know, literally off the grid, even though lots people would, you know, would love to be on the grid. Um, you know, this sort of hashtag van life feeling that we can be free is probably connected with that feeling that you might be feeling about how we're sort of laden by all these names and labels. Yeah, it's, um, it's, I just am finding it really interesting, especially right now to be thinking about mm. the power of naming and mm. the inherent power and structure of 
the the way the modern world needs this kind of addressing system for people mm-hmm. and places uh, so that things can be found and positioned and organized so that inherently messy things can be yes. found and positioned and organized. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, and, I mean, I make this point in the book that there that Sometimes I saw Cass account, you know, as being sort of a bad thing, you know, all of these debates and all these arguments and how terrible this is. But, you know, for me, I like the arguments. I mean, I think, um, I think I make the point in the book that like arguments, um, you know, they can divide communities, but they also create communities. Like th- this kind of arguing, this kind of jostling, this kind of struggling, this kind of reckoning is kind of what makes us because we're constantly deciding who we are and what's important. And a lot of times these arguments, I mean, in my world, at least <laughs> involve street names. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, it always comes up when you have something. This came up in Hollywood, Florida, when I was um, researching this, you know, this Confederate street names. So they say, well, let's just number them, right? Let's just number all the streets. Let's just do this, you know, very American thing. And people don't want that either. You know, activists don't want to rename the, don't want Lee Street to become First Street. They want it to become, you know, Rosa Parks Street. They want to, they want to endow a different kind of history on the name because we all, we all want to imprint the landscape with our values and our identities. Um, And arguing about this became, you know, becomes a way of figuring out what those identities are. Definitely. I am uh, most thankful right now in what's happening in the world um, and some of the urgency around it because it is prompting conversations with people in my life that I don't think it would have ever been able to come up otherwise mm. about mm-hmm. really deep ideas and thoughtful ideas about what like their their relationship with their past or tradition or um where they grew up or their own particular way that they understand their own history that mm. i find particularly fascinating i i think for a wide variety of reasons but one of which is i have found myself always the one that's interested in change and wants mm. to like constantly change things so mm-hmm, i find mm-hmm. it quite fascinating purely on an individual level the idea that people are cling so hard to something in the past. And I want to try and understand why, especially in people that I don't feel it's any kind of, at least certainly not conscious intent to weaponize. Mm. I mean, there are definitely people who are consciously weaponizing that stuff, mm. which mm. you can usually spot them. But um, I'm, I'm more interested in people who are struggling to figure out who they are outside of those demographic tick boxes. Yeah. I mean, it's just hard. I mean, I think a lot of human nature is, I mean, this is sort of me just postulating, but I'm sure lots of other people have talked about this, you know, who who we are, like, what is our identity? Mm-hmm. And people will do a lot of things for identity. So, you know, so, you know, there's that whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs where, you know, first you need food. I can't, I will ever remember, but you need the basics like food and water and shelter before you get to these higher needs like identity and self-esteem. And there, there are research who say like, no, this should actually be flipped, actually. And this comes up in my homelessness chapter that maybe you need some identity and self-esteem, you know, maybe those are just as important to us as, as these basic needs are, that they're hugely important. So when people sense that their very identity and their self-esteem is a threat, I think for some people, it really goes to their core beliefs and their core sense of self. Um, and, and and that can be really scary. And I, I think I understand why that's so scary. Um, yeah. And this comes up, for example, in the South Africa chapter, which you alluded to, where 
you know, it really focuses kind of in an unusual way, actually, on Afrikaners, who are largely seen as the, quote, uh, architects of apartheid, you know, where they really have this sort of identity struggling to do. Was everything about being Afrikaner bad because of apartheid? Like, and how do you reckon with that? Is that true? You know, how do you, how do you live? How do you go forward? You know, what can you salvage from this? This, this is, this is what people fight for, I think. Yeah, a, a language and the things that the positive things that they identify with, instead of the negative things that they didn't experience, which is understandable in a lot of ways, even though it's not necessarily the best way forward if we're trying to fix a lot of broken things. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's very, very painful. You know, it's very, very painful, I'm sure, for people to think that their ancestors fought to enslave other people. I mean, that's not any kind of identity you want to have. It's not any identity that you want to pass on to your children. So a lot of people, and a lot of people, to their credit, don't do this. But, you know, a lot of people will really fight hard to cling to that because, you know, and they need to believe that for their own self-identity. And um, and that's not to say we all don't do that in some way. You know, obviously, that's, that's a egregious example where I think, well, you know, nostalgia and memory is not a reason to enshrine this. But I think, you know, I think sometimes we we all do that in our own lives in some way, if you think about it. We're all finding some way of trying to recast our identity in a way that feels positive to us. Um, And I think it's probably just part of the human condition. I agree. It's, um, it definitely made me think more about it in this book, especially the idea that we have imposed this type of identity on lots of different people throughout slavery, throughout colonialism, uh, by removing their cultural identity and forcing one upon them that uh, perhaps most definitely they didn't want in a lot of cases. And yes. it's an interesting, it's, it's like the old joke uh, that you sometimes hear in the UK mm. with, um, with people here, uh, you know, protesting to people who come into the UK and start to slowly change, you know, changing the culture. And it's like, oh, really, that's what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to the people who colonize the world. Yes, you go to a place that's not yours, you impose your culture, and yeah. change its face. Exactly. Yeah, it, it sucks, exactly. doesn't it? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But you know, this just comes up in cycles in history. Yeah. Uh, and we're probably just in one of those, one of those cycles of, of thinking about identity this way. For sure. Deirdre, it was a really interesting book. And thank you so much for joining me today. Really great. Thank conversation. you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, and if you want to learn more about Deidre Mask or her book, The Address Book, What Street Addresses Reveal About Identity, Race, Wealth, and Power, you can find links made for clicking in the show notes for this episode and on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.